values, and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks for being here. Appreciate you spending some time with us. What exactly is, what is a special interest migrant, and why is it labeled that? Federal agents, have, uh, we're going to talk about uh, a bust coming up here in a moment, but what exactly are special interest migrants? Well, they are people that are on the terror watch list. These are people that are come from terrorist countries. Their names are on a watch list. Special interest migrants, as they are called by the Biden administration, are migrants that come from areas of the world that have been have specific ties to terrorism or they have travel patterns in areas that have ties to terrorism. Um, and so the concern is that there may be extra background checks that need to be done, and that's what's done in these cases. If there are derogatory information found, then special interest migrants are taken into further custody, but many of them are released. There has been a 600% increase in these, as we've seen a record 2 million, over 2 million migrant encounters at the southern border. So uh, we talk often. We talk very often about immigration on this show. I I think that um, we have to walk a line. I've talked about the fairness of immigration. I've talked about we do need to revamp our immigration system. But there are national security implications here. The idea that you lump people together, and we do this on both sides of this conversation. We should not be calling everybody that comes to this country a migrant because some of them are not migrants. Some of them are here illegally, just like a – again, to be fair, um, you wouldn't say a shoplifter is a customer. You wouldn't call them a customer. Customer. You'd call them a shoplifter. And it, it's not this is not the crime of the century sometimes. Many of these people are coming here for noble reasons, but they are breaking the law. And the reason why I say that isn't to denigrate the people that are coming here illegally. It isn't about shaming people. It's about saying to the people that come here the right way and do things the right way that they deserve to be called migrants. They are migrants to this country. They are naturalized citizens. And the key emphasis is on the word citizen. They have come to this country the way we've asked people to come to this country. They've gone through the process of citizenship. They've spent the time. They've spent the money. They've passed the tests, the background checks, and everything else involved to get the full right of citizenship in this country, and they're entitled to it, and we should honor it. But when people come the wrong way, we we should not be lumping all of those people together. That's just, to me, a principle, a basic principle. But we also have to acknowledge that when we have an open border the way that we have it, it it has other dangers. And here is one of them is what they call special interest migrants. But how about this again? Federal agents arrest three men, seize 430,000 fentanyl pills in Avondale. The U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of Arizona said Avondale's Carlos Alberto Castro Ruiz, Phoenix Alexander Ortega Isat. Islas and Mexican uh, Mexico's Kevin Crosswell Cervantes were each indicted last week on two charges of conspiracy to distribute fentanyl and methamphetamine and use possession of a firearm during a drug trafficking offense. You know, we, this, uh, this is a complex issue as we talk about the U.S. border to the south. The Biden administration is considering an immigration program for Venezuelans. It would be similar to the one allowed to thousands of Ukrainians enter the U.S. on humanitarian parole. So it's interesting that this administration 
and I don't want to muddle the two categories too much, but the administration that demonizes American oil companies and American fossil fuel production in general uh, has gone to the Venezuelans and asked them to up their production of oil so we could buy their oil so that we could do something to offset the two million barrel shortage uh, that uh, production reduction in um, if from the OPEC nations. We now look at Venezuela and we've asked them to start producing more oil. So we're going to enrich them. We're going to enrich the oil company or the Venezuelan government. At the same time, we are going to open up a program to take their citizens in as refugees the same way we do for Ukrainian refugees because of the horrible conditions of their country and the horrible treatment by their government to anybody that would try to get out. The reason why we had the wet foot, dry foot rule here in America with Cubans for so long is because of the harsh treatment of anybody that tried to escape the island that was then sent back to that island. We realize that a communist country like Cuba is very harsh, just like the Russians are, the way the Iranians are with protests in their country, that these nations that oppress their citizens and any citizen that dare speak out is imprisoned or killed. And we know in Cuba that they were imprisoned and treated very harshly by their government if they dare speak out against, if they protest or they try to escape. If you're old enough to remember the stories of Cuban uh, exile, people that were leaving uh, Cuba that were on the Olympic team or on the Cuban national teams, whether it was baseball or basketball, they would come to the States either for – they would be uh, internationally in the Olympics and then they would try to leave then or when they would come to the States for special tournaments or otherwise. They're watched by their people very, very, very closely. And we had a a position in America that Cubans deserve – um, asylum in this nation based on the harsh treatment from their government. We did this for de- for decades, and that was rescinded during the Obama administration, and we normalized relations with the Cuban government when the Cuban government did nothing to change the way they treated their citizens. And now we're going to do it with the Venezuelan government. We're going to bring their people in because of the harsh treatment. At the same time, we're asking to do business with them when it comes to production of oil. The two policies don't make sense. Why would you enrich a country? Why would you do business and enrich a country? Well, the answer is the president himself says climate change is the biggest issue. He said global warming in an interview, but climate change is the biggest issue that this nation and this world faces. That's what they believe. So they aren't going to allow uh, the American oil companies to get off easy and produce the energy we need. But we're going to go and buy it from nations that hate us. And treat their citizens in a way that is contradictory to what every American believes, that how every American believes a citizen should be treated. It makes no sense to me whatsoever, but that's what we're doing. And so at our southern border, we are seeing these huge encounters and increase in encounters with people. We are seeing harsh treatment of citizens from around the world, which we all feel bad about. But look what's happening at our border. So let's say we open the door to Venezuelans and we say that you are going to be entitled to asylum here in America. Let's say we do that. How many of those people are going to be lined up for hearings and otherwise – to get in, to be processed with the overwhelming number of people that are doing it now and not doing it the right way. That's where the big issue is for me. We're doing nothing to fix the problem. We've got people coming in from countries that we know have ties to terrorism. We've got these huge fentanyl busts that continue, and nobody in this administration seems to be moving an inch on trying to change the way things are done. It makes no sense to me. 
coming up in a moment, um, American universities are falling further and further behind in the world as far as top universities, especially as we see the Chinese universities educating their children. We'll talk about education in just a couple of moments. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show. KTAR News, 92.3 FM and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks for being here. We've been having a conversation about higher education. I had a great conversation recently with Dr. Michael Crow from uh, the Arizona State University and uh, talking about education, tuition, return on investment, graduation rates, and all of those important things. Uh, there is no doubt that Arizona State University has been transformed over the decades by Dr. Crow and the leadership there, that they have gone from what was known as, when I moved here in 1995, was known as a party school, and it has turned into one of the most innovative, the most innovative university. Uh, in the country, and uh, they've been consistently named that. And uh, you look at their engineering program and what it has turned into, their business school, uh, the WP, WP Carey School of Business Management, the Cronkite School, which we have such great benefit of here at this radio station and, the, and, our, and our brother radio station over there at, at, at sports. Um, so many people have graduated from Cronkite and have turned out to be wonderful in this business and there's so many other programs but what does it look like nationally here's just a headline that caught me today american universities continue to falter in world rankings as china rises uh, the u.s preeminence among the world's top research universities continues to diminish according to a new global ranking while chinese universities are on the rise producing a greater quantity and higher quality of research than ever before and uh, these are some of the things that we should be looking at. Among the top 100 universities, the numbers of those in the U.S. fell to 34 from 43 between 2018 and this year. The number of Chinese universities in the top 100 increased from 2 to 7. Now, we are still leading, but we are falling behind. Education is something in this country that we do not take as seriously as we have in the past. The business of education is what I believe is to blame. The politics of education is what I believe is to blame. You look on college campuses, it's nothing new. It happened in the 1960s where college campuses, um, they, they are supposed to be, and I think they were in the past more so, a place where you learn your voice. Not, not that everything that you believe in college is something you're going to believe for the rest of your life, but you learn your voice. It's, it's where the apologetics comes in. It's where you start to be able to articulate what you believe and why you believe it as opposed to just espousing your beliefs. You hone your skills. Uh, I used to speak with high schools quite a bit. I used to go to Red Mountain High School quite a bit and speak in the social studies department, and it was never a speech, and I didn't give my opinions on a lot of things, but I let them. I had students ask questions, and I was, I was very very pleasantly surprised at a couple of things. One of them is how intelligent the questions were. And the other was that they are concerned, young people are as concerned about the issues, uh, the same issues you and I are. And the questions were fantastic questions, and it was a great conversation. And I remember having a conversation about climate change, and one of the students um, – uh, one of the the girls there said, I disagree with you, but I really don't know why. And I thought it was one of the most honest moments anybody could say. I mean, to say that I, I, I don't agree with you, but I don't know why. I can't articulate why I disagree with you. And I said to her, you have to learn why you believe what you believe. 
that's apologetics. You and that because you, I, I can't have a fair argument with you right now. I'm going to win. I'm older than you to start with. But if you can't articulate why you believe what you believe, you're going to lose that argument every time. I never want to change what you believe. I want you to believe what you believe. But you have to figure out why you believe it so that you can articulate it in an argument. Understand my argument as best you can to defeat it, but also stand stand strong and stay true to what you believe. And we don't do a whole lot of that in education anymore. There's a lot of indoctrination across the across the board in education. Higher education in America, we understand, you know, college campuses and what happens when you bring in a conservative voice on some college campuses where there's protests and violence and everything else. You know, in the 1960s, it was protests against the military and against uh, actually it was against any anybody in authority. But because of the Vietnam War, there was a big protest against that war on college campuses. They didn't want anything to do with the military on campus, whether it was recruiters coming on campus or returning troops coming to get a college education, it just is the way it is. But we used to have more of a debate on college campuses where you are entitled to your position. And I'll give credit here uh, again to Arizona State University in the way they handled it. When they had um, a multicultural center and white students were attacked verbally and videotaped by people of color saying, get out of here, you don't belong here. And they said, isn't white a a, a culture? And they laughed and said, no, it isn't, and actually told them that they should go somewhere else. And Arizona State University said to the students that did the videotaping that you can't do that, that a multicultural center invites everyone, everyone. And we have to get back to more of that and an education of teaching people how to learn and then letting them figure it out. And I don't get it. Um, you know, still at the high school level, a Michigan school board postponed its meetings after members of the Muslim community came to a meeting to protest sexually explicit books in the schools. Um, so they suspended a meeting on Monday night. In Dearborn, Michigan. Now, Dearborn, Michigan has a very large Muslim uh, population. Um, Members of the community attending the meeting to protest sexually explicit books in the school libraries are currently under review. Monday's attendees also pushed back against the board's book review policy implemented on October 5th, which requires parents to state why they are concerned about a book in the library before it's reviewed by media specialists. Protesters chanted, vote them out, and held up signs um, against homosexuality, keep your dirty books in the closet, that kind of stuff. Um, And I think that in the end, one of the things that people are figuring out across this country when it comes to education is that parents are going to sound off and the parents are going to continue to make their voices heard. In the end, we paid for have the schools and we are the ones that are sending our children there. We are not just I've had the argument with people. Well, you wouldn't you wouldn't tell a doctor how to operate. No, I wouldn't. But I would choose the doctor very carefully that I allowed it to operate. So there is a big difference. And there's a lot of pushback coming from parents, and I think it's I think that it's uh, long overdue. When it comes to universities, we have to keep an eye now on our American universities faltering in the world when it comes to research, and that's a big part of universities. Coming up in a moment, um, it's not just law enforcement having a hard time recruiting. We're going to talk about that coming up in just a couple of moments. Show KTAR News 92.3 FM and the KTAR News app. 
Hey, thanks for being here. Uh, we talked yesterday about, and we've talked often about recruiting into our police departments, a story that was written criticizing law enforcement, especially specifically the Phoenix Police Department for not having enough officers of color working in their agency. And I, I talked about it then, and I thought, why is it a surprise? We've spent the last few years talking about defunding the police and racism and treating people of color horribly by police officers. Why would people in the in those neighborhoods, in those communities, then sign up to be a police officer if this is what they're being taught about the police at such a young age? Um, now we shift because it's not just police agencies that are having difficulty recruiting um, people. More soldiers are leaving the Army National Guard at a faster rate than they are enlisting. So we are losing people that are serving their country. I have been um, blessed is the only word I can think of. Um, I have been overwhelmingly blessed to be surrounded by the veteran community um, for a long time. When my brother was killed in Iraq and I started to speak out about his story and how he gave his life for his country, I really assumed that I was going to go out and tell this heroic story of my brother's death and how he served his country so well and so honorably and how proud I am of him. And uh, what I found out was as as heroic as my brother's story is, it is not unique that there are so many men and women, and I, I, I'll tell you at first I was a little bit embarrassed that I didn't know more than I knew, but I've made it up. Uh, my brother's been gone now for almost 20 years, and uh, over those 20 years, I have made it a point to try to learn as much as I can about veterans that have uh, served this country in combat or otherwise and their stories because what you'll find out is that the stories of heroism are so commonplace and it's people around you, people you work with, people you know in your neighborhood, people you see all the time in all walks of life, very unassuming usually, people that will never tell you of the things they've seen and especially not the things that they've done. They didn't ask for anything. They don't walk around wearing medals. They, they don't talk about their heroism. They will back to their lives. And what I think is a shame about that is we haven't really passed on to a younger generation the pride of serving a cause bigger than yourself, especially your country. Um, we are blessed here in Arizona to have a huge veteran community and a military presence of the National Guard, whether it's out at Papago or otherwise. I've got some great friends that serve in the National Guard. Um, uh, my friend Tim um, uh, Tim Woods is his name. He's a lieutenant colonel. He flies the helicopters out of Papago. His father was also a pilot. Uh, this is a guy that lives a great life. He is uh, one of the Thunderbirds that puts on the golf tournament every year. He went to U of A. This is a kid when he was a kid that could have gone on and done anything he wanted to do in his life. But not only did he serve, not only has he been on multiple deployments and in combat, he continues to serve in that capacity. The heart of a servant those kinds of things are what we don't focus on enough. And when you talk to him, and, and and Tim is an example of so many veterans I've talked with, or he's still in service, but so many people that serve that I've talked to, uh, they don't want to talk about themselves. They don't want to tell you what they've done. Um, what they will talk about is camaraderie. What they will talk about is accomplishments of a unit. They will talk about the service and the character of the people that they have been around and that they are around now. It really is an extended family. Family, which is why so many people, when they come back from Iraq or when they come back from serving a tour in combat, the bond that they have built with people by putting your life in someone else's hands and vice versa is hard to leave. Um, 
When my brother was killed, one of the people that was at his funeral was a soldier named Mike Sismondo. He was a sergeant. He was my brother's friend. He was the man that was um, – uh, that escorted Tom home and was there by our side until the funeral was over. Um, at the time, I think Mike was 24 years old and newly married, and he was at the funeral with his wife. And I asked him, how does it feel to be home? And uh, Mike Sismondo said, it feels great, but I've got to get back to my buddies. And in that moment, you could see the guilt on his face as he felt guilty that he was sleeping in his own bed. He was there with his family. He was in the comforts of home while the men he served with were still in harm's way. And I don't know that families and I can intellectually say I understand it, but I don't. I've never been there. Do we understand what it feels like that how great you feel to be home? You're back with your loved ones. You're back where you belong. But part of you is still there knowing that you've left people behind, not in a bad way, but you your time to come home is now. And you've left people behind to do that hard work. And there is a disconnect. And I don't know that we express to young people enough how much character that builds in you, that what it does to you. Why are veterans, when I talk about athletes, people that have been a part of team sports, and I say they make better employees because they learned at a very young age to work with people they might not hang out with otherwise. They know that a common goal is bigger than the individual. Well, how much more of that is in the military? Men and women that serve in the military uh, know what it's like to count on someone, know what it's like to not necessarily get along with someone or not agree with their politics or whatever else. But when it comes down to being in harm's way, there is no doubt that that person will risk their lives and give their lives to save yours and you would do the same for them. So the military is having a hard time recruiting right now, I would say for a multitude of reasons. But I think maybe it's time, at least I may, this is just my idea. If there, if there are any recruiters out there listening, maybe it's time for you to start telling your stories or recruit veterans to come in and speak to people about their stories of heroism. Every year, I have the privilege, and I have, I think for 10, I don't know the exact number, uh, the Veterans Medical Leadership Council, the VMLC luncheon right before Veterans Day every year. It's coming up in November, and I'll be emceeing that luncheon again. I have that privilege, and we get to hear these amazing stories of people's service. Sacrifice, yes. Heroism, yes. But an overwhelming story of service. Service to their country. And we honor people from all branches of the service in all conflicts going all the way back to World War II. And it is an amazing afternoon to look around that full ballroom at the Biltmore and listen to these stories of men and women that have dedicated their lives to serving their country and their countrymen and women. And I wish we would hear more of those stories. I think if more and more young people had an appreciation for what that does, the character it builds, the memories, and the sacrifice that make you a better person, I think more people would be out there doing it. I love the fact that we have an all-volunteer military. I think it makes us fantastic. It makes us great. How do we – How do we express to young people that, yes, you are going to benefit from this, whether it's bonuses or the, uh, you know, or college or whatever it is, training, but you're also going to benefit because you're, you're serving a cause greater than yourself, a cause bigger than yourself. And how do we, I think that that's still a part of who we are as Americans, that we truly believe that 
true service, that a great life involves serving a cause bigger than yourself. And what greater way is there than the military? So I hope those numbers turn around, and I hope they find a way to do it. And I hope the young people out there, if there's any of young people out there listening, that you'd consider it because it is something that is truly remarkable, and there is a nation of people that are thankful for the men and women that do it. In a moment, did the FBI offer Christopher Steele a million dollars for the Trump dossier? There's a story that says yes. Why is this important? We'll get to it coming up in just one moment. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show. KTAR News, 92.3 FM and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks for being here. Appreciate you spending some time. Before I jump onto this next topic, I want to finish up the topic I was just talking about, which is service above self. It's it's the military having trouble meeting recruiting goals and some of the reasons why. Um, I want to tell you a story. This is why I think military service is so honorable and why the men and women that do it are so honorable. I was at an event for the 10th anniversary of 9-11. We put on, I put on with a, uh, an organization asked me to come out and be the MC for their 10th anniversary. And uh, um, a guy named David Haddad, he owns a cigar place up in North Phoenix, uh, put it on with his organization. He had been to the uh, Middle East many times. I think he took almost a million cigars to the troops. And the guy just wanted to make sure the men and women that were serving knew that the people at home respected their service. So he put on this uh, Friends of Freedom event with this 10th anniversary. And one of the guys that was there was a guy named Kelly Hillier. And I've had Kelly on the show before to tell the story. And I was amazed by this. I'm sitting at a VIP event. And uh, Kelly Hillier, an unassuming guy at the time, he was a captain, I believe, in the army and a military policeman. And he starts telling this story of when he went into the military. He was in ROTC in college. He got his commission and was cooking at Applebee's, I think it was, cooking in a restaurant. And he decided, I don't want to be a cook anymore. I'll go into the military full time and I will um, and then I can go work in my profession as a police officer in the military. And they said, you have to take a deployment. So he did. So make a long story longer. He heads over to the Middle East. He's in Iraq and he's there for a few months. I believe it was a few months. I I may have the timeline off a little bit, but he was there for a, a short amount of time, relatively short amount of time. It was his first command as a lieutenant and he had a squad of military police officers. Uh, They were given an assignment, jumped on some buses, blacked out buses, raced across Iraq. They get to the other side of the country. They tell him the next day you're going to meet your mission. The next day he's walked into a room and sitting in a small cell is Saddam Hussein. And this kid who had been cooking at Applebee's or whatever restaurant he was cooking at in Kansas City um, a short time before is now charged with getting the most – Reviled, hated prisoner that's ever been taken in Saddam Hussein to court for a year. And he's telling the story. And the remarkable thing about the story is he's never written a book, as far as I know, at least up to now he still hasn't written a book. Uh, nobody knew the story except a small group of people he was telling it to. And how his job was to make Saddam Hussein compliant and get him to court. And he said during this – I'll never forget this. During this time he spoke, he said, I was asked a lot of times by people, why are you nice to him? Uh, How can you treat him so nicely? And his response was, because I believe that's what my president would expect of me. We're better than that. And I thought – 
how full of ego would I be if I had been the guy in charge of I, – I would scream it from the rooftops possibly. I would be telling that story to anybody that would listen in many cases. There was such a sense of humility. There was such a, a bit of humility in Kelly when he told that story. I had him on the air when I was doing some of the national filling stuff for Glenn Beck. I had him come on and tell the story on the Glenn Beck show. Up to then, he hadn't written a book, uh, and I know people had asked him. He went back to work, um, listed in his file. I don't even think it lists the name Saddam Hussein. It's just that he was in charge of a very high-profile prisoner. Um, and it was an amazing story of service and how he didn't make this, the soldiers that worked for him do much, that he did it himself because he realized this was such a hated human being. But his job was to make him compliant, and he developed a rapport with him and never lost sight of who he was, but developed a rapport with him and saw the humanity of, of Saddam Hussein and got him to court for a year and fulfilled his duty. And when he came home, and uh, I think he left – he was a major when he left the army. There was no fanfare. You've probably never heard of the guy. You probably have never heard that story. And I was standing in a room with maybe 30 people listening to this unassuming soldier tell this story. That's what the military is. The, the men and women serve in such great capacity in the military, and they do such amazing, great, heroic things. And then they come home. They take the uniform off. They store it away. They have their memories, and they still talk to their buddies sometimes, but they go back to an American life of simplicity usually, and they don't ask for anything in return. They don't ask to be treated any differently than any other American. So going back to this recruiting thing for the military – um, I just think it's valuable to remember that they are serving something much bigger than themselves. And then in doing that, they aren't asking for anything extra. It is such a small percentage of Americans that ever serve in our military. It is a very small number. But they are of the highest character, most of them. There's bad in everything. But the job itself is such an honorable job to, to fulfill that, to, to earn the title veteran is such an honorable thing. I think we need to do a better job of caring for our veterans. There's no doubt about that. Um, and I, I think we should honor them. And it's my hope in telling you that story that some veterans out there would be willing to open up and tell their story. That if you would be willing to talk about what you and the people around you have accomplished, what you've been a part of and what you've done, it might motivate a younger generation to say, I want to do that. I want to be a part of something like that. Um, not that people are looking to be famous, but that they are looking to be part of something. I still think that's a part of what we all yearn for. We want to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. And this gives so many young people an opportunity to do just that, a sense of fulfillment because you realize you are serving a cause. What could be greater than serving your country? And, and I just hope that those goals are met. I know I belabored this point, but when I read that story this morning, I thought, here we are having a hard time recruiting police officers, and it's difficult. It's a job that is an amazing service to your community, and m the vast majority of us honor the men and women that do that job. But it's the same in the military. We don't say it enough. We don't show it enough. And hopefully some veterans now will be willing to speak up about their service, not to brag, but to motivate young people to say to them, if I did it when I, when I was your age, you certainly can do it, and it's something you should do. It's going to build so much character, and it's going to give you so many things to carry with you for the rest of your life. I just think it's valuable. I hope that makes some sense to some people. Coming up just after 10 o'clock, um, the president of the United States finally acknowledges that there might be a very tiny, small, and fast recession that'll be over very, very quickly. So we're going to 
talk about our economy and how it's being affected and when all of this could happen and what it means to you.